On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Polls, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. Bettina Payton remembers the exact moment she stopped believing in life after death. That assumption was shattered when at age seven I asked my father what he thought happens after we die, and he said, nothing. So I adopted that belief immediately, fully, because I wanted to be like him. Bettina's parents were science-minded people, and so was she. Science became her belief system, the source of all answers. She became a physician and a staunch atheist. In 1988, when Bettina was 32 years old, she was working at a hospital. She had two sons and was expecting her third child, a baby girl. Life was good until she found out that she had a complication called placenta previa, in which the placenta attaches so low it's blocking the birth canal. Usually, that means a C-section. But in Bettina's case, the placenta wasn't just covering the birth canal. It was covering the entire front of her uterus. So that when the cesarean would take place, the surgeon would have to cut through the placenta. And the placenta is a huge, spongy organ, basically made of lakes of blood. And so we knew that there would be lots of blood loss. It was all terrifying news, which Bettina dealt with mostly through denial. On the day of her C-section, she got more frightening news. Her doctor told her that instead of the normal horizontal incision, he would be doing a vertical incision, which Bettina knew was used when the stakes are really high, when a surgeon needs to act quickly and with good visibility. So that's when uh, I really had to face it. And it was quite terrifying. That's when the terror just broke through. Bettina's husband wasn't allowed inside of the operating room, so he wiped away her anxious tears, and he watched as she was wheeled away. Because this was such a complicated C-section, she had to be under general anesthesia. The last thing I heard my anesthesiologist say was, think good thoughts. As the anesthetic flowed into her veins, Bettina says she imagined herself and her husband jogging along a country road, moving in perfect synchrony. Moments later, things went terribly wrong, and Bettina had a near-death experience that changed her forever. It's a shimmering, velvety, blazing blackness whose essence is light. In some ways, the line between life and death is well-defined. You either have a pulse or you don't. But in other ways, things are not always so clear-cut. People have experiences that seem to challenge what we know about where life ends and death begins. On this episode, different perspectives on life, death, and what comes after or in between. To get started, let's stick with Bettina's story. So, in the late 80s, she was on the operating table, fully under anesthesia, for a very difficult C-section. Liz Tung picks it up from here. It felt like only moments after she'd slipped into unconsciousness, Bettina heard the sound of her anesthesiologist shouting. In a very loud, anxious voice, what's happening? Her blood pressure is too low. Suddenly, Bettina became aware that she was awake. Not just awake, but alert. She knew where she was. She could feel the operation happening. Not the pain, but the physical pulling and tugging of the C-section on her body. And she could hear everything. And there's this thick atmosphere of anxiety in the room. I can tell that the, something is wrong. And yet, Bettina felt strangely calm. It was a state she'd never experienced before, as if the emotional baggage of her everyday self, all her fears and worries and preoccupations, had been stripped away, leaving just a sense of awareness. She heard the anesthesiologist ask the surgeon what was happening, had he finished the C-section. And then the surgeon's reply, the baby's gone. 
That jolted Bettina from her state of calm. She could feel her brain starting to come back online. It started saying, wait, wait, I'm awake. I'm, I'm, I'm having my cesarean. And it sounds like things are really going badly. So next I hear my anesthesiologist exclaim, really loudly. Now she has no blood pressure at all. That's when it hit Bettina. She was dying. And I felt this amazing stillness in the center of my chest that was deepening and spreading. And I knew that my heart had stopped and that nobody else in the room yet knew that. Even the monitor hadn't registered. It's as if time stopped altogether. Bettina's eyes were taped shut to protect them from drying out. But despite that, Bettina felt as though she could see everything in the room. She watched as her cardiac monitor registered the fact that her heart had stopped and started beeping. The anesthesiologist jumped up. He slammed his hand on a big red button on the wall that summoned the resuscitation team, threw off Bettina's surgery drape, and started chest compressions. In the meantime, Bettina says she was more awake than ever. Her doctors had stopped delivering her anesthesia in an effort to bring up her blood pressure. And Bettina who was a regular part of the hospital's resuscitation team, knew her chances were bad. Back then, in the late 80s, resuscitations were both violent and almost never successful. This, Bettina realized, was it. I'm leaving my family, my sons and my beloved husband. It was just the worst that could happen. As the resuscitation team worked to save her, Bettina felt herself sinking into darkness. There was no more sight, no more sound just pure blackness. And then, slowly, she began to feel this subtle vibration, as if she was being carried along a stream. And I sensed this great emptiness, this huge, vast chasm. She felt herself gliding over the edge of a precipice and into the empty space. She hung there for a moment. And then a great crashing, like cosmic thunder, reverberated through her, electrifying the darkness. It's a shimmering, velvety, blazing blackness whose essence is light. A thought appeared in Bettina's mind. I am. I am. (laughs) I just am. It was a recognition, she says, of her most basic self. Not Bettina, the individual, but the universal fact of existence, the original self. There was no fear or anxiety. And even though she was alone, no god, no choir of angels or dead relatives to greet her, there was no loneliness either. There's only a sense of majesty, infinity. Bettina felt for the first time that she was seeing absolute reality. And it felt like a state of perfection. Perfect happiness, perfect love, perfect knowledge, perfect peace. And then, suddenly, a new thought echoed in her mind. A wordless thought. And it was, you must live. In that moment, Bettina had her version of what's classically described in near-death experiences as the life review. But instead of her own life, she was seeing an infinity of moments from an infinity of other lives— Every event that had ever happened or ever would happen, all concentrated in a glittering point of light, like a tiny spinning disco ball. And I understood, oh, that's what live means. I'm going to live as an individual uh, whose entire experience is enclosed in that point of light. But at that moment, she felt huge, expansive. How could she possibly fit into that tiny, dimensionless point of light? And with that question, she heard a powerful sound rip through the silence. It was as if the space around her had whipped into a cyclone, swirling with deafening power. And the feeling as if I am contracting and falling down a funnel. Suddenly, the movement stopped, and Bettina found herself looking down at the operating room, as if from the balcony of a theater. And the action is resuming at the same instant that I left off. It seems I haven't missed a second. From above, she can see her body laid out on the table, flopping up and down as the anesthesiologist does chest compressions. She sees her abdomen still open, filling with blood, as the surgeon continues to work, the door swinging open and closed as members of the resuscitation team run in, the sound of their gasps. 
and the room is filled with a sense of foreboding and doom. At that moment, an older man dressed in scrubs and a long white coat entered through the double doors. He was a surgeon, and there was something different about him. To Bettina, it looked as if he was surrounded by light. He seems very calm, and he threads his way through the crowd and takes his place at the right side of the body. He reached into her abdomen and started groping around. I know what he's doing. He's looking for the aorta, the main blood vessel, which runs the length of the torso. And he finds the aorta and clenches it in his fist to cut off the loss of any further blood and keep the remaining blood near my heart and brain. The whole of Bettina's consciousness constricted into that point inside his fist. It was the worst, most intense pain she'd felt yet. And then, suddenly, inside the center of that white-hot pain, she felt an explosion. It spread like a supernova, lighting up every nerve and cell in her body. I know at that instant that life has restarted. However, the heartbeat has not restarted. It's still completely quiet in my chest. But I know the resuscitation will be successful. But no one else in the room knows that yet, and they're working as hard as they can. Minutes pass, but still, there's no heartbeat. Suddenly, the surgeon who's got his hand around my aorta says, stop compressions, and everyone stops, and the room falls silent, and he says, I can feel her pulse. Throughout the whole traumatic ordeal, a part of Bettina had been strangely calm, as if set apart watching another part of herself suffering in pain and fear. But now she felt almost ecstatic. She was alive. But for everyone else in the room, there remained a sense of dread. Bettina's heart had stopped for eight minutes, which meant for that entire time, only the small amount of oxygenated blood produced by CPR had been able to get to her brain. And they didn't yet know what kind of damage there'd be. After they finished closing her up, the team removed the tape from Bettina's eyes. And with trepidation, one of the doctors asked her how many fingers he was holding up. Bettina still had a tube in her throat, but she managed to indicate the right answer. Two. Relieved, they reanesthetized Bettina and transported her to the intensive care unit. When she woke back up, she was surrounded by the medical team and her husband, And she motioned for something to write on. And I wrote out a couple of sentences saying how I understood exactly what had happened that I had been aware during the entire cardiac arrest. Over time, they would confirm Bettina's account of what had happened while her heart was stopped. They were amazed, so much so that a year or two later, the surgeon and anesthesiologist agreed to be interviewed for one of the first ever news programs on near-death experiences. And they, they agreed to do it because they could not explain why I knew what had happened and why, what part of me was awake, despite having no heartbeat and all that. Recovering in the ICU, Bettina was overjoyed to be alive. And even better, her daughter who she'd thought had died during childbirth, was alive too. It turned out that when she'd heard the surgeon say that the baby was gone, he only meant that she'd been delivered and whisked from the room, right into Bettina's husband's arms. Bettina has never doubted her experience. The old her, the skeptic, the atheist, was immediately transformed. Her husband, though, also an atheist, did have doubts. He was a materialist. He believed that consciousness arose from the body, and without a living, breathing body, there was no self. He still, you know, he has yet to really reconcile my experience, although he he understands it much better now, as I do, with his belief in matter as the primary reality. So he is still a materialist, and that's fine. I don't blame him. And no one can be convinced except by direct experience of, of who they are. Still, Bettina says her husband was changed by the experience. They both were. Their priorities shifted from work to family to each other. It's been a beautiful marriage because it it made us prioritize love and companionship over everything else. The most fundamental shift for Bettina was in her sense of identity. Friends and family told Bettina that she seemed less anxious, more relaxed and fun which she says is a downstream effect of the biggest way she's changed, the fact that she no longer has a fear of death. 
And so that's the mother of all fears. Seven months after her experience, Bettina went back to work as a primary care physician. But a few years later, by the early 90s, she began to feel a pull to do something else, to make use of her experience to help care for the dying. She wrote a letter to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, a psychiatrist and pioneer in the field of death and dying research and grief. In her letter, Bettina asked how she could make use of her experience. And she wrote back to me in a purple marker one sentence, you must create it for yourself. And so she did. Over the next few decades, Bettina, along with a handful of other physicians, became pioneers themselves in the field of palliative medicine. It's what she still does today, caring for the dying, helping ease their physical and psychological symptoms. And then, if they want to, she talks with them about the experience of death. Bettina still isn't religious. She doesn't believe in a Christian God or any other God. But she does believe in what she calls awareness, recognition of the absolute self, the oneness or connection that all things have with one another. And that is the feeling of love. That's love. That story was reported by Liz Tung. We're talking about the line between life and death. Coming up, gaining insight into a strange phenomenon. Families see a loved one who's had dementia for years. And the first thing they notice is that the patient looks at them. And then the second surprise comes, they say hello, and they say the name of the daughter, grandchildren, and so on. Yeah. That's next on The Pulse. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands. But because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. When the economic news gets to be a bit much... Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money. We're here for you, like your friends, trying to figure out all the most confusing parts. One story, one idea, every day. All in 10 minutes or less. The Indicator from Planet Money. Your friendly economic sidekick. From NPR. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about the line between life and death. Alexander Batiani hadn't spoken to his grandmother in years. Not because he didn't want to, but because she could no longer talk. After being diagnosed with vascular dementia and suffering a few strokes, she had lost all ability to communicate. She rarely even responded to her own name. And one day my mother calls me and tells me, you should call her immediately because she's back again. And I don't know what happened, but she is back. His grandmother was in a nursing home in Switzerland, in Geneva. So I called her, and she was back, the very gentle elderly lady, very soft-spoken. She had studied theater before, you know, and therefore her language was beautiful, actually. And all of it was back. Alexander's grandmother told him she was aware of her health decline and why she was being cared for by nurses. Alexandra soon realized that this moment of clarity wouldn't last long. So I used the possibility, opportunity to thank her for being a really wonderful grandmother. And she in return thanked me for being a wonderful grandson. It was a very warm, very, very, very warm. There was love all over, so to speak. And then after maybe 15 or 20 minutes, she grew tired and Her voice was very low, I mean, very soft. And I ended the conversation sensing that this must have been our last conversation. And indeed it was, yeah. 
Alexander's grandmother died soon after. What he witnessed during this conversation is called terminal lucidity, a phenomenon he now researches as a cognitive scientist. He calls it TL for short. I asked him to define terminal lucidity. An episode of unexpected, spontaneous, meaningful and relevant communication or connectedness in a patient who is assumed to have permanently lost the capacity for coherent verbal or behavioral interaction due to a severe pathology of the nervous system. In other words, dementia, strokes, brain tumors. Alexander writes about this in his new book, Threshold, Terminal Lucidity and the Border of Life and Death. When he first started researching this phenomenon, any scientific articles he found on the topic relied on observations from hundreds of years ago, like stories from the Victorian era. He says mostly because doctors back then wrote detailed essays about their patients. But he wanted to find modern examples of this. For his study, he spoke to people who had witnessed an episode of terminal lucidity with a loved one, and he collected more than 300 cases. Our youngest patient was 10 years old, a young girl with a brain tumor, and the oldest was 101. And there's almost nothing you can use to predict who will have it. For the families where it does happen, what do people Mm -hmm. say about it? What does it mean to them? Well, it's two stressful events squeezed into a very short time window, namely the unexpected return. I mean, just, you know, what usually happens is that the nursing home or hospice calls family members and says, you know, physiologically, it seems that the end is near. If you want to say farewell, you should come. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So family members arrive, but they don't expect to have a conversation. They expect to be there and maybe, you know, say what they wanted to say, but <laughs> they don't expect a reaction. Yeah. And then what happens is they enter the room And the first thing they notice is that the patient looks at them, notice that they arrived. And then the second surprise comes, they say hello, and they say the name of the daughter, grandchildren, and so on. This is very unexpected, of course. It's a gift. At the same time, usually the next morning, or let's say a day later, the nursing home will call and say he or she died in the night. And then you have to cope with two different things. Number one, you had your relative back, beautiful. He or she died, not so beautiful. Yeah, And that's many of them, many of the uh, informants wrote, you know, when I, when I write this, I smile and I have tears in my eyes because it's both. Alexandra says terminal lucidity poses questions about the relationship between the mind and the brain. We believe that we know too much about mind and brain but perhaps we didn't. I mean, there are different ideas on what does it mean to be a human being, to be a person, to have consciousness. And one answer is very clear, you know, mind is a product of the brain, but it's not exactly a scientific finding. It's a philosophy built around certain scientific findings. Yeah. So if we then look at the near-death experience, at least some aspects in some of these experiences, and if we look at TL, something different emerges. The possibility to have a very functioning mind with a very dysfunctional brain, which is not precisely what materialism would predict. Yeah, Materialism would predict that if the brain goes down, so does the mind. Yeah, And a colleague of mine, Bruce Grayson, who is a great pioneer on near-death research, he suggested that maybe when it comes to the border areas of life, such as death and dying, something new emerges and brain and mind go very different ways. Yeah, I think it's hard for <laughs> it's hard for us to separate our brains from our minds because they are in a way the same thing but then also not <laughs> and mm. it's sort of like we can think of the brain as the mechanism and I don't know, hardware, software, who knows. We try to come up with these analogies, but it's really kind of difficult to to even define it for ourselves, what we mean by that. Yeah, the fact that we are conscious, consciousness as such, is one of the great riddles or mysteries in science, also in neuroscience. So scientifically speaking, it's very hard to explain, but in everyday life, it's 
utterly clear that our mind is totally dependent on our brain. And dementia is a case in point. Yeah? So it's a brain disease which leads to a very you know, diseased mind. But so often in nature, you have it, you observe it, that something seems to be set in stone, written in stone, like, for example, if I throw an object on the ground strong enough, it will bounce back and so on. But if the object becomes very, very, very small, like in quantum physics, or if I throw it very, very fast, like in relativity theory, suddenly, utterly new laws apply. Mm -hmm. So whenever we go to the outer limits, so to speak, yeah, what seems to be always true no longer is always true. And something utterly new emerges, which, for which we need a new physical theory or theories and so on. Might it be the case that death also leads to an utterly new set of laws, so to speak? And suddenly you have a mind which seems to be, I mean, this is what our case studies seem to tell us, yeah, which seems to be fairly independent of a functioning brain. And this is what you get both in some types of near-death experiences and internal lucidity. So that's only a proposal, but it's, it might be one way of making sense of it. Alexander Batiani is a cognitive scientist and the director of the Viktor Frankl Institute in Vienna. His new book is Threshold, Terminal Lucidity and the Border of Life and Death. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. In medical settings, a patient is declared dead when there is zero activity in the brain. This is usually referred to as brain dead. But it can get confusing because a person can have no brain function but still seem to be alive when they're on machines that keep them breathing. So this can already be a bit of an uneasy situation when doctors have declared a patient dead, but to the family, they still seem to be alive. Now, a new technique for collecting organs for donation introduces another layer of complication to the end of life. The technique could result in more organs becoming available, saving people's lives, but it's controversial. So controversial, the American College of Physicians, the second largest professional group for doctors in the U.S., declared it unethical and said it shouldn't be allowed in the U.S. Alan Yu has more. Right now, most organ donations come from people who have been declared brain dead, meaning they have no brain function. Ashish Shah is a heart surgeon and chair of cardiac surgery at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Their hearts will be beating, their lungs will ventilate if you push air through it, they'll exchange oxygen. Everything works except for their brain, really. The donor is taken to an operating room. A surgeon opens up their chest, stops the heart, and takes that and other organs out. Then doctors also started to collect organs from people who died because their hearts stopped. You know, in this case, you let someone pass away, you declare them dead. There's a period of time where you wait so they don't have what's called auto-resuscitation, meaning the heart starts up again. And then we can all agree that person's gone and we can take their organs. They were able to recover lungs and livers and kidneys this way, but not hearts. So that just leaves now one other organ left that has been missing out on the opportunity to be utilized, and that's the heart. Because the heart had stopped for too long without oxygen. Enter a new technique called NRP, or Normal Thermic Regional Perfusion. Again, there are some patients that doctors declared dead because their hearts stopped. These patients would not be able to live without always being hooked to machines. The damage is irreversible. Doctors can use machines to pump blood back into the heart and use a clamp to make sure none of that blood reaches the brain. Then they take the heart. These hearts are not irreversibly injured. You can bring them back, reanimate them. You can actually use them in transplant. They still work a year or more later and work great. This organ donation technique could change the field for all patients who need transplants. It adds a new group of potential donors. And because the blood keeps pumping, more organs can be recovered at a time. Tony Donatelli's life was saved because of this procedure. 
He was in the navy for more than twenty years. While he was stationed at sea in 2021, he felt a pain in his legs that got worse. He was diagnosed with AL amyloidosis, a rare disease where abnormal proteins gather in the organs. Because I was decomposing, I was just, I was losing muscle, I was getting weaker, I had no cardiac output. At 40 years old, he went from being a fit, active-duty Navy officer to sometimes. Not being able to walk around a hospital room five times, he needed a heart, liver, and kidney transplant to live, and he needed all three organs at the same time. His doctor told me that if Tony had gotten only one organ, he would have still been too sick to even be placed on the wait list for the next organs. Today, he's swimming, surfing, and taking care of his two children. Thanks to an organ donor who gave him three organs using this new technique, but there's a problem with this procedure. In the U.S., only a dead person can donate their vital, life-sustaining organs. But with this perfusion technique, blood is pumped back into a person's heart after they have died. Again, there is a clamp preventing the blood from reaching the brain, but their heart does start beating again. And to physician and bioethicist Matthew DeCamp, that means they are no longer dead. It invalidates the prior determination of death. He helped write a paper for the American College of Physicians explaining their position against this new technique. He says, "Imagine a patient's heart stops in a hospital, and the team rushes in and uses ECMO as a technology to." Attempt to resuscitate the patient, whose heart then resumes beating, and they begin breathing again. We call that resuscitation. Doctors routinely restart hearts to save lives, to bring patients back, and he says that's no different in the context of this new technique. After doctors restart a patient's heart, the patient is no longer dead. And therefore, cannot donate a vital organ like a heart or liver. So your argument, if I understand this correctly, is that once you restart the blood flow, then the patient is alive. Is that right? Correct. Okay. And so by doing this procedure, the surgical team is killing the patient a second time. Well, it certainly seems that. The conditions for a legally and ethically valid determination of death have not been met. Matthew says doctors who are in favor of this organ donation technique say even if, by some accident, blood flowed to these patients' brains again, their chances of recovering brain function are very, very slim. But to say that they're slim is not to say that they're zero. And so, what that statement really is is a implicit judgment about a quality of life worth living. Rob and Catherine Kerr know what it is like to make a judgment like that. Their third son, Jared Kerr, was diagnosed with a rare genetic brain disorder called metachromatic leukodystrophy when he was two. Patients gradually lose the ability to walk or speak. Most do not live past childhood. When Jared was three years old, he got a stem cell transplant from a donor in North Carolina. That helped him live longer, but his father Rob says it did not mean he recovered. He wore a diaper, was fed by a tube. He went from you know walking and talking and stuff to where he couldn't even sit up on his own. He was in a hospital bed in a wheelchair and everything for fourteen years. In 2021, when Jared was 17, he caught a cold and he did not get better. He went to the hospital and had to be put on a ventilator three times. His lungs started failing. His doctors told Rob and Catherine that Jared would need to breathe through a tube in his trachea. Then he's going to be on this trachea in these machines forever and. Throughout our years of being with handicapped kids and seeing other stories, we knew that that was going to be a very, very difficult life for him. So, 
we decided to um, let him go. They took him off the ventilator. Jared died in July 2021 at the age of 17. Rob and Catherine never forgot the stem cell transplant Jared got at the age of three. He was gifted the cord blood that extended his life to 17 years old when his life expectancy was five years old. So the cord blood extended his life significantly, and we always wanted to give back. Using NRP, the new organ donation technique, Jared donated his heart and kidneys. Rob says that for him and Catherine, even if Jared's heart was beating again inside his body, his lungs would not have recovered. The way I looked at it is, your ultimate goal is to restart the heart in someone else. Knowing Jared helped these other people is what helps me get up every day and keep rolling. He says they are in touch with the person who now has Jared's heart. She had a heart problem since she was 10. She couldn't even walk across the living room without getting out of breath. Couldn't even climb the steps. And because of Jared's amazing donation, she just finished her first 10K. That story was reported by Alan Yu. Coming up, a billionaire's obsession, a big cash prize to prove scientifically, that there is life after death. You have to see a holistic picture. You have to look at all the evidence together to understand what is really going on. That's next on The Pulse. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I I just started doing research. uh, But the truth is, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them, and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about the line between life and death. When scientists are trying to learn more about an issue to establish a scientific discipline, usually a great influx of money is helpful. But that may not be the case when it comes to this already controversial field of inquiry. Grant Hill has this story about a contest that set out to find proof that there is life after death. In 2021, Commercial real estate mogul and aerospace entrepreneur Robert Bigelow announced his new grand endeavor, the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies. Devoted to research into whether human consciousness survives physical death. Robert Bigelow had long been a reclusive gadfly, known for making headlines and the occasional podcast appearance, thanks to his fascination with UFOs. But after a series of deaths in his family, The grain billionaire said his interests began to breach new realms. Through the use of mediums, Bigelow said he was able to get some level of assurance that something in us survives physical death. I believe the other side does exist. He knew that for many people, simply believing in the other side wasn't enough. 
He wanted to prove to the world that the afterlife wasn't just some religious pronouncement. It was scientific fact. But how? Enter the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies, or BICS. The first project for BICS is an essay contest, inviting scholars, investigators, even laymen to apply to the BICS website to enter the contest, seeking the best evidence in support of an afterlife. Bix called for essay submissions to present the best evidence for the survival of consciousness after death, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Which doesn't mean 100 percent, but that's enough to convict, you know, a decision. And witnesses... As for the jury, the billionaire told local TV news stations in Las Vegas that he had hand-selected a small cadre of afterlife experts, including two doctors, a chaplain, a former U.S. intelligence official, an investigative reporter. Each would closely scrutinize entries and decide on the winners by majority rule. First prize for the contest, $500,000, with $300,000 for second place and $150,000. The announcement earned Robert Bigelow a splashy profile in the New York Times and a massive international response, according to his institute's website. When I asked, Bix did not make anyone from the institute available for an interview. Trying to prove that there is life after death, that consciousness transcends, has a long tradition. Brothers, we have met today. In 1882, a group of scientists in London founded the Society of Psychical Research, which investigates cases of apparitions, mediumship, and other paranormal phenomena to this day. It is not only a matter of belief. In the mid-20th century, Chester Carlson, the physicist behind the modern photocopier, funded the head of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Virginia, Ian Stevenson, to look into alleged cases of reincarnation all over the world. Carlson was pleased with Stevenson's initial findings. And then when Carlson died in, in 67, he left a huge pot of money to the university to set up this research unit to, to study this type of thing. In 2002, psychiatrist Bruce Grayson was tapped to lead this research unit bequeathed by Carlson, the Division of Perceptual Studies, which still operates at the University of Virginia. By then, Bruce had spent decades independently documenting near-death experiences after hearing stories from his patients. You know, I worked in three different medical schools, and they varied in how willing they are to let me do this research. Some were dead set against it. And some thought it was wonderful. He noticed how many experiencers had the feeling of floating outside one's body, as if consciousness was stuck in a traffic jam between this world and whatever was next, if anything was. Some say this is the mere manifestation of a dying brain. But Bruce says it's difficult to design science experiments that capture reliable data on what's really going on. For the same reason, it's hard to test the validity of other otherworldly phenomena. We're stuck with these experiences that happen erratically, and we can't predict when they're going to happen or to whom they're going to happen. So it's kind of hard to do this. But researchers have tried, placing hidden targets in emergency wards where patients were often brought back from the brink after cardiac arrest, boards suspended from the ceiling with images on them, images that weren't visible from the ground. Researchers wanted to see if resuscitated patients experienced this floating feeling when they almost died, and if so, whether they could accurately report seeing the hidden targets with secret images. There have been six studies published so far, and not a single one who claimed to have left his body and seen a target. He says in the absence of hard evidence, diehard survivalists, those who believe that consciousness persists in some way after death, have relied on stories, philosophy, and religion to fill in the gaps. This is why when Bruce first heard of Robert Bigelow's essay contest, he wasn't very optimistic it would lead to concrete proof of anything. Science advances in small increments by building on previous research. It doesn't do that by popular essays on where we think we are now. Philosophy professor Keith Augustine was also wary. He and other skeptics took to academic journals to argue why the contest was counterproductive. Bigelow says in like some YouTube videos that, uh, well, we kind of already know there's an afterlife. We're just trying to prove it now. <laughs> like, that's not how science works, right? 
The baked-in assumptions, the hand-picked judges, the cash prizes. The process seemed antithetical to dispassionate scientific inquiry. Science is you're open to either there is or there isn't, and then you do the experiment to find out which one is right, not like you just cherry-pick whatever evidence would support the conclusion you already have. Keith says, look no further than Ian Stevenson, the founder of the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia, who was praised by survivalists for his reincarnation investigations and his efforts to bring academic legitimacy to the field. Ian Stevenson's final and maybe most definitive inquiry into survival of consciousness is often ignored by believers. What Ian Stevenson did was, okay, let's take a a combination lock and then you can use it. Before his death, Stevenson purchased a lock that only he would know the combination to, so that upon his death, he could communicate the code to someone still living. If the box were ever unlocked, you would know Stevenson had sent the message from beyond. That was the test. Stevenson died in 2007. His combination lock still sitting in the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia unopened. But still, this is a field of inquiry that won't die. And others argue that the evidence, however anecdotal, overwhelmingly points to survival of the spirit. And many of them were eager to get in on Robert Bigelow's Big Money Essay Contest. When Jeffrey Mishlove first heard about the contest, he was excited about the idea, but didn't know if he was up to the task despite his decades spent talking to researchers about strange phenomena. I was hesitant to enter because I know there are many people in the field of parapsychology who are at least as experienced, probably more experienced than me in many ways. In 1972, Jeffrey decided to dedicate his life to what he calls psychic functioning and life after death following a reality-shaking dream. In which a great uncle of mine, Uncle Harry, who I hadn't seen him for years, uh, appeared to me in this dream. Jeffrey said he woke up sobbing, singing a song from the Jewish liturgy. So he wrote home to his mother. I said, how's Uncle Harry? I had a dream about him. As soon as my mother got the message, she called me and, and said, how did you know Uncle Harry just died? He started hosting a local radio show in California, speaking to callers and guests who claimed to have psychic abilities. An interview program called The Mind's Ear. He even convinced his academic advisors at UC Berkeley to allow him to get a PhD in parapsychology, as in paranormal psychology. At one point, uh, the dean of the graduate division told me they're taking away my degree. I said, why? He said, well, major institutions do not award degrees in parapsychology. Jeffrey got to keep his degree. He wrote a few books and eventually branched out to public television. Thinking aloud. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we're going to be exploring the holographic model of reality and its implications for ourselves, our bodies, and the world around us. Still, Jeffrey doubted whether he was qualified to win the essay contest until he saw an interview with Robert Bigelow and he heard his own name mentioned. Whether it's Jeffrey Mishlove, for example, or... Bigelow publicly suggested Jeffrey should enter his contest. I couldn't believe it, but eventually I couldn't resist after Bigelow himself said, people like me are the ones who should enter. Jeffrey toiled over what to include in his essay, from his decades of conversations and interviews, and what to leave out. It was about eight months of uh, very intense work, yeah. He cited studies that found 10 to 20 percent of heart attack survivors had some sort of near-death experience. But mostly, Jeffrey's essay consisted of his philosophical musings on the nature of consciousness itself and stories, a lot of stories, cases of alleged mediumship. Both mental and physical mediums. There's Reincarnations. Research with young children who remember past lives as soon as they can begin to talk. They're now and other supposed communications with the dead. Evidence that scoffers, as Jeffrey calls them, have yet to debunk, he says. 
If I were to point to any one piece of evidence, a clever skeptic would find a way to dismiss it. But when you look at all the evidence as a whole, it's unbreakable. And those judging the contest agreed. What a great way to celebrate my 75th birthday. (laughs) In November of 2021, the jury, those doctors, the reporter, the former intelligence officer who were hand-selected by billionaire Robert Bigelow, they awarded Jeffrey first prize for his 98-page essay called Beyond the Brain. He won half a million dollars. Thank you, Robert Bigelow. Bix offered to award essays that could prove beyond a reasonable doubt that consciousness exists after death. Do you believe that in your essay you proved that? Yes. Jeffrey plans to invest his winnings back into his work, spread the word about parapsychology with his YouTube show, New Thinking Aloud. You have to see a holistic picture. You have to look at all the evidence together to understand what is really going on. As for the Bigelow Institute, building on their breakthrough, they announced a new challenge, a grant program to fund research into contact and communication with postmortem or discarnate consciousness. Winning applicants could be awarded up to $100,000. That story was reported by Grant Hill. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. This message comes from NPR sponsor State Farm. If you're a small business owner, it's your life. State Farm agents are small business owners too, so they can help you choose personalized policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR.